Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 11925 kHz on the 25 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Zimbabwe's President Emerson Nangagwa returns home from Europe and South African mission to the UN pays tribute to Ambassador Dumsani Kumalo. In economics news, the World Economic Forum meeting gets underway in Davos and in sports news. South Africa's Bangana Bangana prepared to play Sweden tonight. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. South Africa says it stands ready to assist the Democratic Republic of Congo with issues of stability and development. This comes after the inauguration of President-elect Felix Tshisekedi was postponed to Thursday. Congolese authorities say logistics have led to the delay of the inauguration. The DRC's Constitutional Court upheld the Electoral Commission's declaration of Tshisekedi as the winner of the December 30 presidential election. This after opposition leader Marte Fayolo contested the results of the election. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa and his Kenyan and Burundian counterparts Uhuru Kenyatta and Pien Kurunziza as well as Sadek have congratulated Tishikedi on his election. Spokesperson of the South African Presidency Kusela Diko. The President respects the sovereignty of the DRC, he respects the territorial integrity of the DRC, and he respects that their internal processes, and he's urging them to accept those results, uh, and saying that peace and stability within that country is critical not only for the DRC, but the region and the continent as a whole. Zimbabwean President Emerson Mnangagwa has arrived back in the country after cutting short a foreign trip that focused on trade and investment. Mnangagwa abandoned his trip to deal with the shutdown Zimbabwe crisis following growing international criticism of a brutal crackdown on protests. Show and Bryce Peace reports. According to local NGOs, at least 12 people have died and almost 80 treated for gunshot injuries in what observers have described as a heavy-handed approach by authorities. The UN's Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights earlier said it was deeply troubled by the socio-economic crisis in the country and urged the government to find ways of engaging the population. It also sharply criticised the use of live ammunition and what it called the excessive use of force by security forces. Secretary-General Antonio Guterres also expressed concern, urging restraint. 
Four people suspected of helping Islamic extremists attack a hotel and an office complex in the Kenyan capital last week have appeared in court. A judge in Nairobi on Monday ordered three of the suspects to be held for up to 30 days and a fourth for up to 10 days as authorities investigate possible links to the deadly attack in Nairobi. Another six suspects appeared in court on Friday in connection with the investigation. The five attackers, all of whom died, killed 21 people in the assault. Al-Shabaab claimed responsibility for the attack. South Africa's ruling ANC is expected to brief the media on the outcomes of its two-day summit which ended on Monday in Irene outside Pretoria. The biannual meeting was preceded by the normal meeting of the party's National Executive Committee. Both gatherings were called to discuss the ANC's plan of action for the for next year and practical ways to implement its 2019 election manifesto in the next five years, Ntebo Mukobo reports. The ANC Lekotla is a biannual meeting normally called to identify government priorities requiring attention and to guide the work of those deployed in government. It all started with a political overview by President Cyril Ramaphosa and issues up for discussion included ways to implement the party's election manifesto with a specific focus on getting everyone to support its 2017 resolution to nationalize the Reserve Bank as well as building the state capacity in order to achieve a developmental state. The outcomes of the ANC Lekota will set the tone for discussion at the Cabinet Lekota scheduled for later this month, with its outcomes forming the basis of the President's State of the Nation address. And finally, British Prime Minister Theresa May has promised wide-ranging consultations on Brexit to seek a parliamentary consensus before she heads back to Brussels with new proposals. She has told Parliament that the way to avoid leaving the European Union without a deal at the end of March is to find an agreement that it backs. May says they will get a chance to vote on their options. Three key changes are needed. First, we'll be more flexible, open and inclusive in the future in how we engage Parliament in our approach to negotiating our future partnership with the European Union. Second, we will embed the strongest possible protections on workers' rights and the environment. And third, we will work to identify how we can ensure that our commitment to no hard border in Northern Ireland and Ireland can be delivered in a way that commands the support of this House and the European Union. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. The South African mission to the United Nations has observed a moment of silence in memory of former envoy to the organization, Ambassador Dumisani Shadra Kumalo, who passed away yesterday. His successor in that role and current ambassador, Jirimachila, confirmed an outpouring of messages of condolence from missions to the UN, describing Kumalo as a colossal figure in the halls of the organization. The United Nations Chief Antonio Guterres also offered his condolences to the people and government of South Africa, as shown Bryce Peace reports. Okay, you got all the answers now, but I'm here. Such was the personality of Kamalo. Even during the tricky negotiations on imposing Security Council sanctions on Zimbabwe, he was firm, if a bit familiar. We do not believe at all that Zimbabwe is a threat to international peace and security. Yes, we condemn the violence that's going on in Zimbabwe. Yes, we condemn the political mediation. For us, it's not theoretical. We're seeing it because when people flee from Zimbabwe, 
they come to our country. So we, 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 we understand, we share the frustration of everybody. But we are saying that don't take measures that are going to complicate the situation and literally blow the country apart. The current ambassador, Jerry Machila, called his predecessor a shrewd and nimble diplomat who had a strong command for the processes of international engagement. Where I'm standing, Ambassador Kumala used to stand here uh, many times uh, in defense of uh, multilateral system, in defense of peace and security, in advancing South African interest. It was a known, well-known figure in the corridors of uh, Security Council, just behind us. Uh, he was, his voice was sought after, his ideas sought after. Um, he's a colleague which I knew, uh, very articulate, very robust, and yet a sincere human being who was always trying to find ways of building bridges uh, between the nations of the United Nations. Pretoria's tenure in the Security Council would see Kamalo as the face of South Africa's often controversial positions as it pertained to the human rights situations in Zimbabwe, Myanmar and Sudan, among others. And as diplomats recall it, Kamalo displayed diplomatic dexterity and a political sophistication in finding a balance between the levels of international engagement required while allowing the space for regions, for example Africa, to find solutions to their own problems without the threat of punitive measures when perhaps the circumstances didn't always warrant it. We have always, as South Africa, trying to find a value add, uh, but allowing the neighborhood um, to play a particular role and responsibility. And Ambassador Kumalo mastered that. He masters that. You know, we used to have the big four uh, in South Africa, Ambassador Kumalo, the late Jegeselibe, the late uh, Tehoma Fowler, and when you then these, these guys um, were not only huge in, in body, they had big minds, uh, experience, and combined, they could assist the government to formulate um, robust, consistent policy. So Ambassador Kumalo benefited from this, um, you know, deep-rooted uh, collective thinking. In a statement, current UK ambassador Karen Pierce, who served with Kamalo, called him a tireless and smart representative for South Africa, a true humanitarian who always highlighted the effect council deliberations had on ordinary citizens. The UN chief also expressed his sympathy through spokesperson Stefan Dujeric. I very much remember uh, Ambassador Kamalo. I was a young spokesman uh, at the time, and I in early 2000, and I remember his infectious laugh. I remember the, the wonderful relations he had with the media. And I think he represented South Africa and uh, a new South Africa so well in the halls of the United Nations. Veteran journalist Edith Ledra started work at the United Nations in 1998, just months before Ambassador Kamala would arrive. He came to the United Nations just after I arrived, not, not long after. And covering the Security Council, all of the journalists loved him because he would come out of the Security Council and talk to us, whereas a lot of ambassadors shy away. You could catch him going in, you could catch him going out, and he would always tell you what's on his mind. And I have to say, that didn't always endear him to fellow ambassadors on the Security Council.
Larger than life in every way, charm, wit, and a booming laugh to boot. As evidenced in this response, on a question about who should block the possible sanctions resolution on Zimbabwe in 2008. Hey, I don't know if they're going to do that. I would rather prefer I veto it if you make me permanent. <laughs> I'm Sherman Bryce Pease in New York. Zimbabwe's President Emerson Nagagwa has arrived back in the troubled country late on Monday, cutting short a foreign trip that began in Russia and Kazakhstan that focused on trade and investment. Nagagwa's return to Harare follows, follows growing international criticism, including from the United Nations, of a brutal crackdown on protests against dire economic conditions in the country. Zimbabwe has suffered days of unrest since Nagagwa announced a more than doubling in fuel prices that made the country's petrol the most expensive in the world. Simon Machema reports from Harare. President Emerson Mnangagwa announced late Sunday night that he was aborting his Davo commitment and returning home to attend to serious security matters. Mnangagwa has been away for the week now on an official visit to five countries including Russia and the World Economic Forum in Davos. Meanwhile, Zimbabweans have expressed mixed reactions over Mnangagwa's return as the country is now a bit calm. Economist and former senior opposition leader Eddie Cross spoke to Channel Africa and had this to say. From the beginning, we urged the president to abandon the trip to Europe and to come to, to stay here to sort out the problems. But we're delighted that he's at last taken the decision, and I think that... Uh, you know, the country today is about 60% back to normal. In particular, uh, I'm glad to see that the minibuses and the transport system is working properly. Most factories have been able to open today, and I would think tomorrow will be even more normal. But they obviously deal with a lot of the outstanding issues that remain on the table. The local media in Zimbabwe is awash with the reports that Mnangagwa is under pressure from the international media, Western countries, and European citizens over the killings in his country. His subordinates in Harare blamed rogue elements in the army for the killings, but social commentator Ernest Mzengi had this to say. I think the situation back home did not warrant him to go to, to Davos. Obviously he was going to face a lot of pressure uh, from uh, journalists and other human rights activists who would question why you would be in Davos, maybe preaching that Zimbabwe is open for business. When in actual fact Zimbabwe is shut down, the internet is shut down, human rights are being violated and there are no reforms taking place at home. More pressure could be coming from the fact that Mnangagwa's government has blocked the internet and social media. However, Mnangagwa was busy tweeting of his decision to abort the Davos meeting, a move that was blasted by Muzengi. It's a little of contradiction. Uh, one would then wonder who he is tweeting to at a time when his government has shut down Twitter and other social media platforms. So it's, it's contradictory. And uh, one may actually think that he may be what is happening in government is actually chaotic. You know, there is no cohesion. On Monday, Zimbabweans reported for work and major towns became busy again. A young businessman, God knows Homwe, said. As much as people are coming to work today, it's not all of them. Uh, it's almost 50-50% in terms of people coming back to, to, to work. But the reason I, I believe um, some have come to work is because uh, most of our citizens in Zimbabwe, they are informal business traders. And
and rely on uh, what they get each and every day. It's, uh, what you hunt is what you eat. So there's much there has been demonstrations and stairways. Uh, they couldn't make much. So coming back to work is trying to to make some to earn a living, to earn a living, if I may say that. And with regards to the soldiers' presence in the town, yes, they're still a bit hesitant. People are a bit afraid and skeptical if it's going to erupt again in terms of demonstrations. But at the end of the day, we have to get back to work. We have to start to, to make a living out of it. However, fresh fights in the ruling ZANU-PF were glaring on social media on Monday with some alleging a coup or an impeachment was being plotted against Munangagwa. In Harare, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. A report released by Oxfam shows that inequality is out of control. It says the growing gap between the rich and the poor is undermining the fight against poverty and fuels public anger across the globe. The report titled Public Good or Private Wealth has been released as political and business leaders gather for the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Tabilem Bella reports. According to the report, people across the world want change. They want governments to ensure that the wealthy pay their fair share of tax so that it's invested into boosting public services. Advocate Louisa Zondo is a board member at Oxfam South Africa. So the report reveals how systemically governments exacerbate inequality by underfunding public services such as healthcare, education, uh, while alongside that undertaxing corporates and the wealthy and failing to clamp down on tax dodging or tax evasion. The report further finds that despite efforts made by the South African government over the past 25 years, inequality continues to deepen. Basani Baloy is from Oxfam, South Africa. And we know that poverty is both racist and sexist, with women at the bottom of the pile. Our message here today is that it does not have to be this way. In apartheid South Africa, corporate taxes stood at 50% in 1990. And since post-apartheid South Africa, they have declined to 28%. Health activist Bongile Shabalala says while they want universal health care for all South Africans, the country is not ready for the national health insurance rollout yet. That district, remember, it's one of the pilot districts. Infrastructure is the worst. Ceilings are falling. Clinics are very small. Bloods are taken on the passage. There's no storage. So the question is, when we implement NHI in that situation, and that is a pilot district, we've been piloting NHI for the the past five years, what have we achieved? What have we learned from the first uh, five years of uh, uh, piloting NHI? The honest truth is that we haven't learned anything because health system is still in shambles. Education activist Aisha Mir says the current education system is set up in favor of the most advantaged South African child. Children in townships are set up to fail. Tawil Mpele in Johannesburg. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, It's an honor to be here. 
Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. It's 8.19 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, the inauguration of the Democratic Republic of Congo's incoming president, Felix Tshisekedi, that was meant to take place today, has been postponed to Thursday. Regional powers have hailed his victory despite claims by his opponents of an election stitch-up. Announcing the final results of the much-delayed poll, the DRC's constitutional court threw out a challenge by runner-up Martin Fayulu. It declared Chisakedi the winner, paving the way for him to take over from the country's longtime leader, Joseph Kabila. To discuss this further, we are now joined on the line by Stephanie Walters, Head of Peace and Security Research Program at the Institute for Security Studies. Good morning, Stephanie, and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, and thanks for having me. Now, Chisakedi's inauguration planned for today postponed to Thursday. Do we know the reasons for the postponement? I don't, I don't think we need to read too much into that, to be honest. I think that probably it's due to the fact that um, the Constitutional Court um, ruled over the weekend and they want to organize an inauguration with, I think, a, a large number of heads of state that's going to be essential to them to try and push back on this idea that Chisikedi is not a legitimate president. So I, I, I imagine that that's one of the reasons that they've pushed, pushed this back by two days, just to give a little bit more time uh, for preparations. Now, this has been touted the first uh, democratic transfer of power since independence in 1960 in the DRC. Something well, very is, historical. It is historical in that it's a transfer of power from an incumbent to an opposition leader. Um, there have been transfers of power before, but this is this is a, a different dynamic. I think, though, um, we, before we, we, we start to celebrate that, we have to look at the circumstances, which you also mentioned in your introduction, which, of course, are that there is a, a strong contestation against the results and that many people do not feel, do not believe that the official results that were announced are the real results and that Chisikiri is, in fact, the elected president of the DRC. Martin Fayulu, the opposition, another opposition leader, uh, claims that he won with 61%. Uh, the figures from the Catholic Church also indicate that Fayulu won and so there is an ongoing contestation, even if the Constitutional Court has ruled uh, that, that, that they will not accept that constitu- uh, con- contestation. Now, speaking of uh, Martin Fayulu, he has called for nonviolent protests and, uh, you know, uh, support from the masses. Does he have enough support? Um, if the numbers say he, he won the election and uh, whatever happened to change that has happened, the Constitutional Court has made its ruling. Should he not accept the ruling of the Corn Court and then work on building the country together with uh, this new leadership? Well, I, I think that's a decision that, that we have to let him make on his own. Um, I, 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 I think that there are, in fact, quite a lot of people who do support Fayulu. The, the numbers certainly uh, for his victory are very, very high in the, in the late, in the high 50s. Um, whether people will go into the streets, of course, is another matter. I mean, Congolese have been very, very politically active in the last three years, uh, pushing Kabila not to stand for a third mandate, pushing for these elections to be held, and they've paid an extremely high price, price for that. 
because the Congolese security services have cracked down with lethal force. So hundreds of civilians have been killed, many activists still in prison, journalists still in prison, people who are living in exile because they don't feel safe at home. So there's a very high cost to political participation. Now, I think that in the DRC at the moment, there are different views on how this should play out. There are those, of course, who support Chisikadian who are very happy to see that he is the new president, whether or not they believe that the results are real. There are also those who are Fayulu supporters who perhaps believe that it's time to move on, that this is a, a reasonable outcome. But there are others who say this, 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 we're not going to allow this, this result to be stolen from us. The people of the Congo voted for Martin Fayulu, and that is the legitimate president. Um, how that will play out in terms of protests, I think, remains to be seen. We did see yesterday that Fayulu tried to hold a meeting in Kinshasa and was prevented from, from doing that. And I expect that that is the way in which the Congolese security services will continue to approach any kind of attempt by Fayulu to have either meetings or peaceful marches. Is there even a possibility of a government of national unity in the DRC going forward? Well, we will see the cabinet being formed in the coming days. But how this has played out is that there is a power-sharing deal between Chisikidi and the ruling party. The ruling party has won uh, uh, the, the majority in the National Assembly and a large number of the provincial assemblies, allowing them to elect senators. So they have a tremendous amount of legislative uh, influence and power. Chisikidi's power itself is quite weakened uh, in, in the presidency. Uh, whether he will now be open to sharing that power even further with the Fayulu camp, with the Lamuka coalition, I think is a big question. Whether Kabila would be willing to uh, work with Moise Katumbi and Jean-Pierre Bemba, who are, are long-standing political rivals of his and who are the other key figures in Lamuka, is also a question. And I think that for Lamuka to um, concede at this point and to work with the government of national unity is also a little bit premature. Now, do you think that Felix Chisikedi is the right man to unite the DRC at this point in time? I'm, I'm not sure at this point that it's really about whether or not Chisikedi is the right person. I think that what Congolese were pushing for and what we needed to see in the DRC is, is a transparent and effective uh, democratic process. Um, that is what Congolese were pushing for, for respect of their own constitution, for institutions that are independent and objective. Unfortunately, the outcome of this, this, this particular election does not restore confidence in those institutions and does not restore confidence in, in, in the value of democracy in the Congo. So Chisikidi, having been uh, elected uh, with this kind of high level of contestation, I think will, will not restore the credibility to the point where we need it to be restored. He himself, of course, is, is relatively new to politics in that he took over the party from his father in 2017. Um, he has a very, very difficult job working with an entrenched political elite, uh, many people who have been in power for, for 18 years with Kabila, with a security sector that is dominated by people who are, who are beholden to Kabila. So he, he has an extremely difficult job. Anybody would be facing those challenges. Um, but with the, with the balance between Chisikidi's presidency and the ruling, the former ruling party and the legislative, it is going to be extremely difficult for him to change the way the Congo is governed and to really put his mark on this presidency. What, if anything, can the regional bodies like SADC do at this point in time to ensure peace and stability in the Democratic Republic of Congo? Well, SADC has been... Um, both confused, I think, in its communication about what's gone on in the DRC and, and ultimately has acquiesced. Um, they have their last 
statement, their last definitive statement from last week was that they want the constitutional court and democratic pro- uh, domestic institutions in the DRC to rule on these elections. Now, that is a, a bit of a capitulation when you know that the constitutional court in the DRC is not an independent judicial body. So it's throwing it back, that throwing that decision back to a body that's going to rule in favor of the incumbent. So that, that was certainly a disappointing outcome. I don't know what Sade can do now. It has um, congratulated Felix Chisikedi, uh, so has South Africa, so have a number of other African leaders. Um, at this point, it looks to me as though this inauguration is going to go ahead. And once he is the president, uh, and once regional bodies have accepted the results, they can't then go back and contest these. And I do think that the real problem here is it's not just about was this uh, election free and fair, are the results the real results. It's about what does what does a contested result mean for how that country is governed and for whether or not we see a return to, to long-term stability in the DRC. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us. We'll leave it there for now. Thank you. That was Stephanie Walters, Head of Peace and Security Research Program at the Institute for Security Studies, joining us on the line. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Our headlines up next are Than Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, Zimbabwean President Emerson Mnangagwa calls for a national dialogue over recent protests, saying that misconduct by security forces against people protesting over fuel price hikes will be investigated. South Africa stands ready to assist the DRC with issues of stability and development following the inauguration postponement of Felix Tshikedi and 14 miners have been killed in an eastern Rwandan tin mine after a hill collapsed on them after heavy rains. Those are the stories making headlines.
While the global economy will continue to grow at a steady pace of around 3% in 2019 and 2020, that growth is expected to be uneven and may fail to reach where it is most needed. This is according to the 2019 World Economic Situation and Prospects Report. The report underscores the importance of a dynamic and inclusive global economy to fulfill the 2030 development agenda. Don Holland, chief of the Global Economic Monitoring Branch in the UN's Department of Economic and Social Affairs speaks about the reality behind what appears on the surface to be solid global growth. While global growth is relatively stable when you look at it on the surface, as soon as you look below, growth is very uneven and is often not reaching those who who actually need it the most. And so we see high levels of inequality, widening levels of inequality in many areas. Now, this is a problem in and of itself and also a problem when we're looking at reaching some of the sustainable development targets, for example, very importantly, eradicating poverty by 2030. Over the last couple of decades, we have seen some really dramatic improvements in reducing levels of extreme poverty around the world. But that progress has also been uneven, largely focused on dramatic declines in some large economies such as China and India. If we look at sub-Saharan Africa, improvements have been progressing far more slowly. And under our current projections, which sees growth in Africa around 4% maybe for the next few years and inequality remaining more or less where it is but declining only marginally, The prospects for eradicating poverty by 2030 are not likely to be achieved. We need to see dramatic changes. We need to see growth raise to double-digit levels, over 10% per annum in many African countries. And we need to see the levels of inequality have from where they presently are. As countries develop their own plans for making the SDGs a reality, what can the UN do to help? Well, I think the UN has a very important role to play, and particularly one of the risks that we see in the world economy at the moment is some waning support for multilateral approaches to global policymaking. We see that in terms of trade policy, we see that in terms of development finance, we see that in terms of commitments towards combating climate change. These are essential parts of reaching the 2030 agenda, and they also are global challenges. Climate change does not have a border. There's no border to where the the emissions fall. It can only be tackled with collaborative, cooperative, multilateral approaches. And the UN is an ideal forum to make that progress. Are the leading economies around the world doing enough to put the SDGs front and center in their development and planning? Yes, many countries have taken on board the targets of the SDGs and have started to design policies that will help to move towards the goals. Have we made enough progress? Absolutely not. I mean, if you just look at in terms of progress towards sustainable patterns of consumption and production, we haven't made nearly enough progress on those fronts. Our economic production is still way too carbon intensive, way too resource intensive. We haven't made yet the delinking between economic growth and degradation of the environment, which is essential. And Much more efforts and more urgent efforts need to be committed to. The report says that resource-rich countries often struggle to tap into their development potential. What steps can be taken to mitigate this? 
That's a very important point. Many of the countries that have been lagging behind in recent decades, not just in the last couple of years, but for the last several decades, have enormous natural resource wealth. But unfortunately, the management of that resource wealth means that it hasn't been well directed towards development of the economies. It has enormous potential to help to finance an expansion of education, to help finance investment in vital infrastructure, in healthcare, in all of the factors that we know need to happen in order to make rapid development progress. But instead, the returns are often devoted just to a narrow interest groups or even sent abroad to, to other countries, which means that we're losing out on that potential and reorganizing the way that those natural resources are managed is essential to helping the countries tap into that potential. Can you tell us about some short-term risks that could significantly damage longer-term development prospects? There are sort of four short-term risks that we highlight in the report. Rising global trade tensions, building financial fragilities, a withdrawal from support for multilateral approaches, and then climate risks. We see all four of these having both short-term impacts and potential for doing long-term damage to development prospects. And what concrete policy action can be taken to reduce the risks to the global economy? So first and foremost, we would put emphasis on the need to support multilateral approaches and to support coordinated and collaborative approaches to some of the challenges that we face. Specific policies that we can introduce, we have countries that need to raise their growth. So we need policies that aren't just going to boost the short term, but also have longer term impacts. So, for example, investing today in education, investing in infrastructure, in rural infrastructure in particular, in order to narrow the divide between the urban and rural regions, investing in healthcare, investing in infrastructure and in productive capacities that have a longer term implications can both support the economies today and bring returns over the longer term. That's Dawn Holland, chief of the Global Economic Monitoring Branch in the UN's Department of Economic and Social Affairs, speaking to UN News' Liz Scafidi. Former Busasa COO has confirmed to the Commission of Inquiry into State Capture that the Minister Nomvula Mokonyane received a monthly bribe of 50,000 rand over a number of years. Agrizi continued to spill more beans in his testimony at the Commission in Parktown, Johannesburg. Agrizi also testified that ANC MP Vincent Smith was taken care of and that monthly bribes to the Correctional Services Department increased after Tom Moyani was appointed National Commissioner. Mbali Titani reports. Former Busasa COO Angelo Grizzi has proven to be a star witness at the Commission of Inquiry into State Capture. Since beginning his testimony last week, Grizzi has also gone as far as using evidence to support his testimony. Grizzi revealed to the Commission how Busasa used bribes to secure business deals and just after four days on the witness stand, Grizzi continued to drop bombs when he testified that Environmental Affairs Minister Nomvula Mokonyane was paid a monthly bribe of 50,000 rand over a number of years. Agritsi says he was responsible for packing the cash and Busasa CEO Gavin Watson would then hand it in person to Mukonyane. We knew that she was very close to the president at the time. The president Zuma? Yes. 
Yes. But even further than that, if there were certain people to be spoken to in the Hawks, we knew that she would be able to do that. And that is why it continued. Turning to the Department of Correctional Services, Agritzi told the Commission how the monthly bribes to officials were increased to 750,000 rand after Tom Moyani was appointed as National Commissioner. Put into perspective, I'll give you an example. For instance, a letter was written to Mr. Moyani by a certain journalist to start querying about why are you retaining Basasa? And it was just simply just put away. And when I asked the question, is Mr. Muyani assisting us? I was told, yes, what happened with the investigation? Absolutely nothing happened. So yes, it was confirmed to me as well. Agritzi further testified that ANC MP Vincent Smith also received favours from Busasa. He said the company assisted with his daughter's studies abroad. I was requested by Mr. Gavin Watson to make a payment for Mr. Smith's daughter to study at Aberystwyth University overseas. And this was made by a cash deposit into an account called Euroblitz. Um, Mr. Jacques Van Sale made the deposit at FNB on instruction. Agritzi continues his testimony on Tuesday. Ambali Tetani in Parktown in Johannesburg. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Working Group 2, IPCC, says global warming is fast becoming a cause for concern and the world is running out of time. Top academics, researchers, scientists met in Durban to find ways to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Discussions at this meeting will also be drafted into an IPCC report, which will be presented at the next United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change in 2023. The week-long meeting is attended by more than 250 authors and IPCC bureau members from 60 countries. Nonjabulum Dungwa. Makamu reports. The chairperson of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, Hussein Lee, says not enough African scientists are showing an interest in advancing efforts to fight climate change. Speaking at the Working Group 2 first lead author of the sixth assessment report meeting in Durban, Lee says global warming is fast becoming a cause of concern and time is running out. Africa is said to be among the most vulnerable continents, experiencing serious changes in its climate patterns. He says the recent drought and the high temperatures are proof that Africa needs to join the world in finding ways to decrease global warming by 1.5% degrees Celsius. Lee says every continent, including Africa, needs to play its part. It is particularly important that this meeting is taking place in Africa. Climate change affects us all, but is a particular threat to the poor, to those in the developing regions. This meeting can also serve as a symbol for, of the IPCC's engagement with Africa, with African scientists and policymakers. We would like to see a greater involvement from this continent. I very much hope that holding this first lead author meeting here will inspire more young scientists from Africa to get involved with IPCC. Addressing delegates at the meeting, Deputy Director General 
for Climate Change, Air and Sustainable Development at the Department of Environmental Affairs, Dr. Takane Ngomane, says since countries in the southern part of Africa are already experiencing more frequent heat waves, Africa needs to act fast. Temperatures in the country are rising at about twice the global rate. Further to the north, over Botswana, temperatures are rising at a rate of about 3 degrees per century. In fact, Botswana is one of the regions with the highest rate of temperature increase in the entire southern hemisphere. And it's right, it's our neighbor, we, uh, we share a border. We are seeing extreme temperature events uh, that have already uh, increased in frequency and occurrence. It's quite alarming and it should be an issue of central concern. Guazulu Natal, MEC for Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs, Nomusa Dubengube, who also gave an address, says since the province has experienced the worst drought in 2015, it now takes issues around climate change very seriously. The drought in Guazulu Natal had reached a critical stage with farmers losing livestock and plantation. Authorities had to enforce water restrictions throughout the province. Dubengube says global warming is serious. Our province is still really in terms of with this negative consequences of drought and it is important therefore for us to learn um, such experiences but also develop capacity to think on our fit and act to resolutely counter um, the climate change. So the IPCC session um, that we are at is a very welcome opportunity um, to showcase the progress that has been made in the fight against the global warming. So it is um, uh, important for us as a country, as a whole, um, to have uh, this chance. The summit is expected to end on Friday. Nunjabulum Tungwamakamu. SABC News, Durban. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhoko. Good morning. The World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, will give South African President Cyril Ramaphosa a platform to argue for increased investment in South Africa. But he must be ready to answer questions about the independence of the Reserve Bank and uh, the Revenue Service and how he intends to fix the debt-laden power utility ESCOM. Political analyst Raf Matejas says given all the revelations of corruption and maladministration through various inquiries in South Africa, Ramaphosa has to show potential investors that the country is on a different trajectory compared to previous years. Ramaphosa is leading a delegation to the annual meeting of heads of state, finance chiefs and captains of industry amid low economic growth in South Africa. Meanwhile, the International Monetary Fund's Managing Director, Christine Lagarde, has urged the policymakers to deal with economic vulnerabilities by reducing high government debt. She was speaking at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. The world economy is growing more slowly than expected and risks are rising, some of them actually related to policy. Add to this the uncertainty 
the geopolitical worries and disappointing long-term growth prospect, and the message is the following for policymakers. Address remaining vulnerabilities and be ready if a serious slowdown were to materialize. Thousands of members of South Africa's trade union AMCU will embark on a secondary strike in the platinum sector this morning. The action is in support of striking union members in the gold sector. AMCU members at Sibanya Steelwater, west of Johannesburg, have been on strike since November last year. They are demanding a 902 US dollar monthly salary and an increase of $72 per year for three years. AMCU's president, Joseph Matunjwa. It's a power game. I mean, if we, we, we disrupt the production, it's what uh, they, they ask for. So we're giving what they want. After the 22nd, we'll be deciding at Chamber of Mine how long will we push, I mean, that uh, sympathy strike. But the ball is in their court. Uh, France has complained to Italy after the Italian Deputy Prime Minister Lichu Di Maio accused the French of exploiting what he called African colonies to finance the national debt. De Mayo on Sunday called on the European Union to impose sanctions on France for the part it played in the migrant crisis. He said if it wasn't for Africa, France would rank 15th among the world economies, not in the top six. I am tired of talking about the effects of migration. I want to start tackling the causes. And the causes are the lack of development of African countries. Because instead of helping them in Africa, we must leave them in peace at home and stay at home ourselves. And when I say we, I talk about those European states like France that during these years have had benefits from exports of raw materials by printing a currency for 14 African states. Egypt plans to upgrade six oil refineries at a cost of about 9 billion US dollars over four years to increase domestic production to 41 million tons a year. Egypt's petroleum ministry says it's trying to secure crude oil supplies for Egyptian refineries to increase local production of refined products. Egypt currently has refineries, eight refineries with a capacity of 38 million tons, of which only 25 million tons are utilized. The U.S. dollar is trading at 361.83 Nigerian Naira, 10.31 Botswana Pula, 100 Kenyan Shilling and 92 cents and 11.89 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 3.75 Brazilian roll, 66.35 Russian ruble, 71.13 Indian rupee. 680 Chinese Yuan, 13.84 South African Rand. The US dollar is trading at 77 pence to the British pound, 87 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities now, gold is trading at $1,277, platinum $791 pounds. The price of Brent crude oil is at $62.27 a barrel. From an African perspective. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati.
First up in our sports update, we begin with uh, uh, tennis news. Stefano Tsitsipas beat Spain's Roberto Batista Agut in four sets to continue his superb run in Melbourne and reach the Australian Open semi-finals. At 20 years and 168 days, Tsitsipas is the youngest man to reach the last four of a Grand Slam since Novak Djokovic at the 20, 2007 US Open. The Greek 14th seed won 7-5, 4-6, 6-4, 7-6, and 7-2 tie in 3 hours and 15 minutes. When asked about how he feels, this is what he's had to say. I need some time to answer. <sighs> it all feels like a fairy tale, almost. <laughs> it feels like a... It doesn't feel, I mean, I'm just living the dream. Living what I've been working hard for. I mean, I feel a bit emotional, but not too much, because I know that, uh, again, I really worked hard to get here, uh, playing the semis of a Grand Slam. I started the year and they asked me what's one of my goals this year. I said semis Grand Slam. And I thought uh, when I was answering this question, I, I thought I was crazy. Uh, but uh, no, it is real. And it just happened. The sixth seeded pair of South African Raven Klassen and his New Zealand doubles partner Michael Venus were eliminated from the Australian Open at the quarterfinal stage this morning. Klassen and Venus lost their men's doubles match 6-4, 7-6 and 8-6 tie to the unseeded pairing of Leonardo Meyer of Argentina and Juan Souza of Portugal. Klassen's best finish at the Australian Open was the runners-up place playing alongside American Eric Butteridge in 2014. The 36-year-old was South Africa's last hope at the year's Grand Slam in Melbourne after men's singles players Kevin Anderson and Lloyd Harris lost last week. Anderson lost to America's Francis Tiafoe in the men's singles second round last Wednesday while Harris lost to Russia's Daniil Medvedev in the first round last Tuesday. In cricket news, Pakistan fast bowler Hassan Ali is hoping to build on what he described as important victory over the Proteas in the opening one-day international at the weekend when the two meet in the second match of the series in Deben today. The Tories comfortably won game one of the five-match sequence by five wickets at St. George's Park in Port Elizabeth. Ali believes the clash at Kingsmead is equally important and hopes they can continue the upward curve in a format they enjoy. Uh, I think uh, uh, it is very important for us uh, because uh, we lost Test Series 3-0. Uh, so I think uh, 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 this is a very good start for us. We lost a Series and uh, then we have a good meeting uh, and uh, new guys uh, came and uh, our Test side is a young side. And uh, we know it's uh, difficult to play uh, Test against uh, South Africa. Uh, but uh, we have good side uh, in uh, uh, ODI. And uh, yes, yeah, so we're playing with a uh, good approach. And, uh, we're looking forward. This is our first win. Our, uh, we're looking forward. Uh, we have a good side, ODI side. So, inshallah, we'll, uh, we'll try to win this series. And in athletics, the International Association of Athletics Federation, the IAAF, says it has cleared 42 Russian athletes to return to international events, albeit competing under a neutral banner and not representing Russia. Athletics governing body banned Russia in November 2015 because of evidence of state-sponsored doping. But the Russian athletes cleared by the IAAF can compete as neutrals. Among the athletes are two-time women's world high jump champion Maria Lasistekny, 2015 and world 110-meter hurdles champion Sergei Shubenkov, and European pole vault silver medalist Timur Mogunov. 
Russia will learn today whether it is to face fresh sanctions over December's missed deadline to allow investigators from the World Anti-Doping Agency WADA access to the Moscow laboratory at the epicenter of the doping scandal. And finally, with uh, volleyball news, Zone 5 volleyball president Gustav Ngorunziza says Rwanda will hold the first ever Zone 5 volleyball club championship from the 19th to the 24th of February. The event to be staged at Amahoro Indoor Stadium in Remera is expected to attract 16 teams from around the region. The country is also due to hold the Zone 5 General Assembly in Kigali on the 23rd of February. Ngorunziza says the event will be played every year attracting top four teams in each country zone five is comprised of 12 countries including burundi djibouti egypt eritrea ethiopia kenya rwanda somalia south sudan sudan tanzania and uganda that's your sport news this hour Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Zimbabwe's President Emerson Nagagwa returns home from Europe and South African mission to the UN pays tribute to Ambassador Dumisani Kumalo. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzo Ramagaza and Komuzo Mopulane, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org, WhatsApp on 277-6300327, or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Are taking us to the top of our folding news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is Garabo with the song title Ding Dong. Without you getting on my mind mm-hmm. Not a day passes by Without me imagining you by my side Oh yeah, baby Cause I'm standing outside all alone All alone this further cause I've been in a lot of places I've seen a lot of faces but you so baby what's your secret let me know so I can get it cause you Sako siangi manga sa 